1992, Cheryl Levitt, her daughter Susie Streeter, and Susie's friend Stacy McCall went missing. The women apparently went missing from Cheryl's house with nothing more than a smashed porch light cover to indicate something sinister had happened. Though there have been suspects in the case, no one has ever been charged, and the case remains one of Springfield, Missouri's most well-known cases. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today is Allie. How are you, Allie? Besides my voice just starting to go just now, I'm okay. Well, this will be a very long recording session. We have a two-parter to get to. So this episode is one that's been requested so many times, but the first two were Jenny and Kathy, so thank you for sending this in. It kind of got bumped up on our list a little bit when one of my daughter's friend's parents who listened to the show also brought it up. So hello to Elsa's parents. And we were really interested in diving into this case. It's a big one, so we need to probably just get started on it. So Cheryl Levitt was a 47-year-old cosmetologist in Springfield, Missouri. She was well-liked in the community. Her client list at the salon was pages and pages long. She was very good at what she did. She had been married and divorced, and she had two children with her first husband. Her kids were Bart Streeter and Susie Streeter. The kids were nine years apart, but adored each other when Susie was little. Cheryl had separated from their father when Susie was still a baby, so Bart, he was a big help with the new baby and his newly single mom. But when Bart was 17, he moved out of the house, and he characterizes this move as that moment when a parent just kind of throws their hands up and says, if you want to live under my roof, you have to live under my rules. And Bart decided that wasn't what he wanted, so he went and found his own roof. But this led to pretty much a good 10-year estrangement between Bart and his family. Meanwhile, Cheryl remarried and took on the surname Levitt. But her 1989 divorce from Don Levitt dealt her a financial blow. She ended up with his creditors coming after her, and she had to hire lawyers to settle things for her. So Cheryl was dealing with an estrangement from her son. She was raising this strong-willed and somewhat rambunctious teenage daughter and all those legal and financial mess from her divorce. But Cheryl handled it, and a lot of people around her would never have known from her disposition just how much she was dealing with. Everyone who knew Cheryl would describe her as being fearless and independent and an extremely hard worker. She really lived up to this during this period of her life. In the autumn of 1991, Cheryl and Susie were living in an apartment when Bart moved back to Springfield and reached out to his mother and sister. The family seemed to be on this path to mend fences. In early 1992, Susie and Bart decided to become roommates. This wouldn't be the first time Susie moved out of home. The previous year, she lived with her boyfriend for a few months. Susie was still in high school, but she had been kept back a year in elementary school, so she turned 18 during her junior year. For those not in the US like me, that's year 11. So while this may strike us as odd, this high schooler moving out of her mother's home, she was 18 and legally an adult. Cheryl couldn't have stopped her, even if she wanted to. Bart admits to having had a drinking problem back then, and he and Susie got into an argument one Friday night. She had come home from her part-time job at the movie theater, 
And Bart was drinking. He had his music up really loud. Susie told him to turn it down. He didn't want to. They started arguing. Then it escalated to where they were yelling and throwing things, and there was even a bit of a shoving match that happened. Susie moved out right away, and this caused another estrangement between Cheryl and Bart. Bart was in his late 20s at this point, and Susie was not quite 19. Cheryl had expected him to be a good influence on his sister, look out for her, not get into screaming matches or put his hands on her. In early spring 1992, Cheryl bought a small house in Springfield. The house was characterized as a fixer-upper and a good investment, so whether Cheryl was going to fix it up for herself or maybe she was going to sell it later for a profit. Cheryl actually had a background in home maintenance. When she had first separated from Bart and Susie's father when Susie was a baby, she made a deal with the apartment complex that she could live rent-free in exchange for doing small repairs, and that allowed her to stay at home with the kids a little longer and keep a roof over their heads. So Cheryl and Susie were living in this new house when in June of 1992, Susie graduated from Kickapoo High School. Susie spent the week before graduation, which is also known as senior week, doing all the usual school-sponsored activities, as well as reminiscing with her friends. This is generally the time where people scatter. Some go to college and some stay at home. Susie's plan was to go to cosmetology school. By all reports, Susie and Cheryl were incredibly close and very much alike. So it made sense that she wanted to follow her mum's footsteps with her career. Susie was described by her friends as being happy, popular and a creature of habit. One of Susie's closest friends was a girl named Janelle Kirby. Janelle was good friends with Susie Streeter, but also another girl named Stacy McCall. And Stacy is the third victim of this crime. Stacy was the youngest of three daughters from a tight-knit family. She was a good student and she worked at the gymnastics gym. Stacy would be described by her friends and family as being funny and bubbly. She was also gorgeous. She dabbled in modelling for a local wedding shop. She hung out with the goofy kids, but she was well liked by everyone. Stacy and Susie had been good friends in grade school, but they drifted apart as they entered their teen years. Stacy's family moved away when she was 10 or 11, and she came back a few years later, but they just didn't reconnect. Susie ran with a tougher, more edgier crowd than Stacy did. They were still both friends, but just not close friends. But they had Janelle linking them together. The week before graduation, Stacy and Susie were catching up and reminiscing, a bit particularly because Stacy was planning to leave to college in the fall. She was going to Missouri State University. On June 6, 1992, which was a Saturday, Stacy McCall and Susie Streeter graduated from Kickapoo High School with their friend Janelle. Stacy went home and did the usual photos and such with the family, and her parents said that they felt that mix of joy and a little bit of relief and a little bit of sadness because she was the youngest, and here she was all grown up. As grown up as 18-year-olds can be, I don't think I realized how young 18 was until I had an 18-year-old child. But Susie only had her mom around, really. Her dad was out of state and not involved. Her extended family didn't live nearby. And, of course, they were estranged from Bart. So on their way home from graduation, they just grabbed a pizza and went home to eat, 
and just spent some time together before Susie left for a graduation party. The high school had a graduation party planned at the school. It was an alcohol-free lock-in. And some of our American listeners may have had this at their schools. It's called Project Graduation. But being a lock-in, if you went to it, you had to stay all night. You couldn't leave until 8 or whatever the next morning. So Stacy, Susie, Janelle, and a fair-sized group of other kids planned to go to a water park in Branson, Missouri the day after graduation. And some of them, Stacy and Susie included, planned on getting a hotel room for the night in Branson. The plan was to hit a few graduation parties that night and then take the 45, 60-minute drive down to Branson. Stacy's mum, Janice, wasn't a big fan of this plan. She didn't see why they would drive that far at night after a long day and after going to parties. She was worried mostly that there would be a car accident under those conditions. Janice suggested the girls just sleep at home and then drive down in the morning. Around 8, 8.30 that night, Stacy and Susie met up at Janelle's house. They first went to a party that was next door to Janelle's house. They planned to party hop before going to Branson for the night, but they were having fun at the parties and didn't want to leave for the drive, especially so late at night. So around 10.30, Stacy called her mum and said there was a change in plans that instead of going to Branson, they were going to stay at Janelle's for the night. This made Janice relieved. She just said for Stacey to give her a call in the morning before she left for the water park. Now remember, this was before cell phones, before you could check in with a quick text. So Janice was just making sure that Stacey would give her a call every so often to make sure she was okay. Stacey promised to call her mum before they left in the morning. She told her mother she loved her. This would be the last time Janice would speak to her daughter. The last party the girls went to got broken up a bit before 2am when the police responded to a neighbour's noise complaint. They went back to Janelle's where they planned to spend the night. Janelle's bedroom had been taken over by relatives in town for the graduation and Janelle was sleeping on the couch. So basically all was left was floor space in the main living area for Susie and Stacey to sleep. Meanwhile, at Susie's house, there was this brand new king-sized bed that Cheryl had given Stacey as a graduation gift. The girls decided that instead of sleeping on the floor in a house that was filled with visiting relatives, they'd be better off sleeping at Susie's. So Stacey and Susie drove to Susie's house, each in their own cars. They planned to touch base with Janelle in the morning when they were up and moving. The timeline after this is fuzzy and is reported differently depending on the source. And some of the differences can just be chalked up to the passage of time. Maybe the day after an incident, you thought something happened at 8, but 25 years later with TV crews in your face, you say it happened at 10. So we're going to give the range of times we have seen the most consistently reported. The variations only seem quite slight anyway. As you mentioned, it could be just the difference of a couple of hours of a phone call or visiting a house. Nothing I've seen would really affect what happened to the three women. Nothing would play a major part and is the smoking gun here. It's just a minor tweak in the timeline. Right. And the police estimate that Stacy and Susie got back to Susie's house around 2.30 in the morning. Janelle's mother had heard the girls enter her house and then leave. So I think they're basing this on her reporting of when they had left her house. 
Another friend who was with them that night, Shane, also saw them get into their cars, and that's the last confirmed sighting of the women. Cheryl was home doing house projects that night. She talked to a friend around 9.30 and then another friend around 11.15, and everything seemed fine with her. We don't know how late she stayed up or if she was even awake when Susie came home unexpectedly at 2.30 in the morning. The next morning, June 7th, Janelle woke up and called over to Susie's house. The police report says 7.30, but media reports at the time say 8. Janelle would later say herself it was around 9 o'clock, but again, the passage of time blurs details. Honestly, again, nothing that would really be a major player in what happened to the women or really affect the investigation. But Janelle and her boyfriend Mike were waiting to go to the water park, so they kept calling the house. They assumed the women were sleeping in after the late night of partying. Janelle and Mike headed over to Susie's house to figure out what was going on at some point between 9am and noon. When they get to the house, there were three cars outside. Cheryl's was in the carport and Susie's and Stacey's car were out in front of the house on the curved drive. One of Susie's good friends named Nigel said that this was out of place and this wasn't Susie's normal parking space. Cheryl's car was in the carport and that was normally where Susie parked her car. I personally don't see that as particularly odd. Cheryl wasn't expecting Susie home that night, so it makes sense for her to then park her car there. I think it's alluded here too in two parts. One, that maybe someone moved the cars around. I think that's a stretch though. It would be taking a huge risk to manoeuvre these three cars around out in the open with what could be potentially a dozen witnesses all around. It also wouldn't make sense that Susie parked her car in a different space because there was someone else there, which has also been heavily speculated. But we will talk more about that later. Mike and Janelle went to the front door and noticed glass all over the porch. The globe over the porch light was shattered and there was glass everywhere. The light bulb itself, though, was still intact and it was on. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. When I started my business, the one thing I kept in mind was that I wanted to treat every customer like family. To me, those are the kind of businesses that stand out. The first point of interaction most customers have with me is through my website. So I knew I needed a website that was user-friendly and comprehensive. Squarespace had everything I wanted. They had beautiful templates to choose from and tools that make it easy for me to give my customers exactly what they need, with the ability to manage my business, inventory, and sales completely on the go. Squarespace analytics give me insight into where our customers are coming from, which helps me tailor our outreach to where it's most needed. And with a direct message feature on my contact page, my customers know I'm just a click away. I couldn't be happier with how Squarespace helped me get my business off the ground. Check out squarespace.com start for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code start to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com start and use offer code start. Something that's interesting to note, from what we can see in the picture, there were no shards of glass left in the light fixture, which is what you would expect to see if the globe was in place when it was broken. It looks like the globe was removed and then broken. Broken on purpose or accident is still the big question. Mike grabbed a broom and swept the glass away. And now this is one of those other things people's ears perk up a little bit on Mike's part because one, where would he have gotten a broom? And two, why would he have bothered sweeping up someone else's mess? 
It's funny, I've never actually thought where he got the broom from. In all the times I've heard about this case and read about this case, it never struck me where would he get the broom from, which is odd, because it's an odd thing just to come by. Right. And I think if you look at the house, though, the house didn't have a garage. It had a carport right next to the porch. And I really think that Cheryl probably kept her outdoor supplies in there. Now, Cheryl's been described as a meticulous housekeeper. Her house is always immaculate. So she seems to me to be the type that would sweep her porch and keep a broom in the carport for this purpose. Now, I can barely keep the inside of my house swept, but it is windy here in Missouri and in most of the Midwest. A lot of people sweep the dust and debris off their porches. Most of my neighbors do, I'd say. And even though I'm not someone who does that terribly often, I think I would sweep up glass if I saw it and there was a broom nearby. I mean, I wouldn't want anyone to step on it. I think the reason this point really sticks with me is because we've seen this in a lot of various cases that we've covered. And in the case we covered on Faith Hedgepath, that something that sticks out as really odd to one person can seem totally reasonable to another, because I think this is totally reasonable, but it comes up time and time again. And I think that's one of the reasons it's important to have a lot of different perspectives on a case And I'm not talking, you know, you and I, podcasters, armchair detectives. I mean, actual investigators as well. And that's something that may not have happened in the early investigation or maybe not to the level it needed to. But as we like to say on the show, we're going to get to that later. So back to Mike and Janelle. After getting the glass out of the way, Janelle peered through the window and knocked on the door. She didn't see or hear anything, so they went in the house. They were thinking that maybe the women were all still asleep. There is a little discrepancy in the reporting if the door was simply unlocked or if it was partially open. What they saw inside was, well, nothing at first glance. The women weren't there, but everything was in place and the house was tidy, which is the way Cheryl always kept it. Susie's room was not tidy, but this was also the way she kept it. The beds looked slept in, which always makes us wonder if they were the type to make their beds. We have to assume at least Cheryl was with how she kept the house and how neat she liked things. In the bathroom, there were wash rags with makeup on them in the hamper, and jewellery that Susie wore the night before was on the side of the sink. Stacy's jewellery would later be found in Susie's room with her clothes, so it does look like they were getting ready for bed. The family dog, Cinnamon, was agitated, which was uncommon. Janelle would later report that the little dog seemed frightened and he just wanted to be held. The TV in Susie's room was on a static channel, but the volume was turned down. There was really nothing at that point to make them think anything bad had happened. So Janelle and Mike started to leave the house, but as they were leaving, the phone rang. Janelle answered the phone, and again, this is something that stands out as odd that she was answering someone else's phone, but she said she thought it might be someone who would know where the women were, who would have that information that she needed. But she said it was a very short call because she hung up when the male caller started saying lewd things. The phone rang again after that, she picked it up again, and it was the same voice saying the same things, so she hung up again. So she shook off the creepy feeling. And she and Mike left and went to another friend's house where they thought Stacy and Susie may have actually gone, maybe to meet up there. When they weren't there, they went back to Susie's house. They didn't want to just ditch their friends and their plans. Of course, nobody was home. And considering where they may have gone, 
Mike and Janelle thought maybe they walked somewhere for lunch. So they drove to the local sandwich shop, which was most likely place in walking distance from the house. They couldn't find them. So, you know, they gave it a good try. So they went about their day. They were confused on what was going on and slightly concerned, but they figured they'd catch up with Stacy and Susie later and find out what was going on. Also calling the house about midday was Stacy's mother, Janice. Stacy had told her she'd called her before she left, but she hadn't, so Janice called Janelle's house. Now remember, the plan was for Stacy to stay at Janelle's. Janelle wasn't home, but her sister told Janice that Stacy hadn't spent the night there, as she thought, but had gone over to Susie's. Because the girls weren't close anymore, it had been several years since Stacy spent the night at Susie's and certainly hadn't spent the night since Cheryl bought the new house. So Janice didn't even have the phone number, let alone the address. At first, Janice was slightly annoyed, but not completely alarmed. Stacy changed plans at 2am, so I can see why she decided to skip the phone call home. Waking her parents just to tell them she was at a different house for the night probably didn't seem worth it. But being a parent, you know that you don't care about those little details like the time of night. You just want to know where your kids are. Stacy was her third child, so she'd already been through this sort of thing two times previously. It wasn't really a big deal at first, so she got Susie's number and called over there. Now, of course, she got the answering machine and she left a message. Then she went about her day. Stacy's older sister was getting married soon and Janice was helping her with some wedding preparation. They also had family in town for the graduation and had planned activities. Janice just said in her message to Stacy for her to call her when she got back from the water park. Janice kept calling Stacy's house periodically as the day went on and eventually got in touch with Janelle, who mentioned that she hadn't seen or heard from Stacy that day and that the water park plans had fallen through. So now the concern was creeping in. First, Stacy wasn't at Janelle's overnight like she had thought. And now Janelle says she hasn't even seen or heard from her all day. Janelle had changed plans and not gone to Branson at the last minute. She went to a local place instead. So at this point, Janice is thinking it's still possible that Stacy had gone ahead and she was in Branson. So Janice just kept calling Susie's and leaving more messages until she finally got a call on her phone around 7.30. But it wasn't Stacy; It was someone else who had heard about what Janelle found at the house. Word spreads really quickly in towns like Springfield, Missouri. This was a mother of one of Stacy's friends. And she told Janice that she heard that Stacy's purse and car were still at Susie's house and that Susie wasn't there. Now, she thought this was odd. She was alarmed and she wasn't sure that Janice knew, so she was calling to let her know. Janice and Stacy's two sisters then drove over to Susie's house as the sun was setting. So this was a June sun, so we're talking about 8.45. Her dad, Stu, he stayed home in case Stacy called the house. Janelle was already back at the house at that point, and so were other people. The media reports at the time says as many as 18 people were at the house from when the women were discovered missing until the police were called, though only eight are named in the police report as being there when they actually arrived. What that does to evidence at a crime scene, it makes me antsy. So much contamination of what could be important forensic evidence. 
But Janice was worried, but also a little bit peeved. She was pretty sure all this concern and worry was just Stacey being inconsiderate and not calling. She usually calls if plans changed and told her mum where she was, so this was a bit out of character. But also possibly maybe she was flexing some post-graduation independence. Janice wanted to give her daughter that, but being a mum, her first inclination was to have her other daughter take Stacey's car and all her things back to the house so when Stacey did show up at Susie's again, she would be without her things and without her car. That would be the consequence for not following through with her promise to keep Janice in the loop about her plans. She would then have no choice but to call Janice right away and apologise. But when Janice got to the house, she initially didn't get any inkling there was anything wrong because all the cars were there. But once inside, things were odder than she thought. The front door was still unlocked, so she went in and called out, but again there was no answer. The keys to all the cars were in the house and all their purses were there. But oddly, they were all lined up next to each other and under them was Susie's overnight bag. Now, the way the house was laid out, Susie's bedroom was down a few steps and all three purses were at the bottom of these steps. It did make sense for Susie and Stacey to have dropped their purses there, but why would Cheryl's be there? There was more concern when the purses were looked through. Both Cheryl and Susie were heavy smokers, with Cheryl being a chain smoker. Those who knew her said that she couldn't walk between rooms without a cigarette, let alone leave the house, but their cigarettes and lighters were left behind. Leaving an open pack of cigarettes in a purse at home doesn't make sense to those who knew the women, but of course, they could have had a second purse or a second packet. Also in Cheryl's purse was a large amount of cash. She apparently hadn't made it to the bank at the end of the week and had a large amount to deposit from work. It was about $700 in cash and a similar amount in checks, and it was all in her purse and it appeared to be untouched. And Stacy's purse was her migraine medication, and this concerned Janice immediately. Stacy's migraines could be debilitating, and they would hit her very quickly, so she always kept her medication on her. Stacy's shorts and sandals from the night before were found next to Susie's bed. She had folded the shorts and put them on top of her sandals, which again makes it look like the women went to bed. Her t-shirt and underwear were not found, and that's probably what she was sleeping in. Janice was asked early on if it was possible Stacy would have borrowed Susie's clothes to go out again, and she said she wouldn't have. Stacy outweighed Susie by 20 pounds or so, so any shorts or pants wouldn't have fit. This is why we said earlier that we don't agree with the theory that someone was already at the house forcing Susie to park in a different spot than usual. I mean, why would Stacy get into bed wearing only a t-shirt and underwear if there was another person in the house? Why would any of the women have gone to bed like normal if there was someone else there? Cheryl did not have a boyfriend or at least no one serious enough to be spending the night. The house smelled like varnish. So Cheryl really was working on that project while Susie was out. And also on Cheryl's bed, there was found a book opened and turned over like she was in bed reading a book, not something you'd do if you had company over. In looking at pictures of the house, I think the most logical reason Susie parked where she did was to avoid blocking her mother's car in. 
The carport only fit one car, so Susie had to either park on the circle part of the driveway or park right behind her mother's car. It makes sense if Susie planned on riding to Branson with someone else to leave her car where it wouldn't block her mother in. But back to the house. At the house the night it was discovered the women were missing, we have Janelle, her boyfriend Mike, Janice and Stacey's two sisters. Then other people started coming over and as more people showed up, Janice grew more and more worried. She realised it wasn't just Susie and Stacey off without calling anyone, but Cheryl was also truly missing. Friends went through Cheryl's personal phone book and called around to people listed to see if anyone had seen or heard from her. They made a pot of coffee when they did this. They used mugs and they cleaned the kitchen. Maybe it was anxious energy, but the friends wiped counters and tidied the house the way they knew Cheryl would have wanted it. What we know now, though, and they couldn't have known at the time, they weren't just wiping down a table. They were wiping down a crime scene. Also, at some point during all of this, Cheryl's answering machine was checked. In some reports, it says that a message was left that wasn't of any consequence. In other reports, it says it was again a man's voice making lewd comments. The message was inadvertently erased, which is something that actually happened with some frequency with answering machines. So this message was lost forever. I do find it odd that her friends were checking her answering machine. Like, I get that these people were missing and they were trying to help, but in what case, why would you check someone's answering machine? Like, why would they be calling their own house? Because they wouldn't be expecting anyone there. Right, and I think that's what they were thinking was, oh, let's check the message. Maybe it'll explain where they went, or maybe they called and left a message, but... Like you said, why would they call that phone and not, let's say, Janice and Stu's phone? Or one of the girls calling Janelle telling her that they weren't going to the water park anymore. Right. It definitely sounds like people were looking for things to do and finding things. But what they were doing was absolutely not helpful for an investigation. And Janice did eventually call the police from Cheryl's home. She called the non-emergency dispatch because it didn't really seem like an emergency. There really was no sign that anything bad had happened to any of the women except that they weren't there. Janice just wanted a police officer to come by and take a missing persons report. In some reporting, you'll see it say Janice went the next day to file this report, but the police case file does show the report was taken around 1045 that night. The first officer said he got to the call shortly after starting his overnight shift, but it was the second officer on the scene who took the report. So best guess is that the police were called around 10 p.m. It was late, so Janice was told to come by the next day, and she was told to bring Stacy's dental record. So can you just imagine you can't find your child, and the police are suggesting you bring the dental record in? Now, it makes sense from an investigation standpoint, and I really hope they were gentle in how they said this, and they probably said a lot of other things that night, but the statement about the dental chart really hit Janice because that was the moment she was first forced to face that something really, really bad could have happened. Janice got to work doing what she could from the start. Today, we have social media to help. The families of missing people can reach hundreds of thousands of potential witnesses over social media so easily. But this wasn't the case in 1992. 
But in an odd twist, Janice and her daughters, including Stacey, watched a TV special on the Adam Walsh kidnapping not long before Stacey disappeared. We all know the big ways the Walsh has helped families of missing kids in the US, but even just sharing their story the way they did and when they did, it helped families in small ways by showing them what needs to be done in similar situations. Janice had all these pictures of Stacey from graduation, so she hurried to get the film developed so she could have the most recent picture possible. And she made a missing persons flyer with pictures of all three women. Stacey's family and friends, along with Cheryl and Susie's friends, they went out in force to get these flyers handed out and put up in stores. They made them bright yellow so they would stand out and there were literally thousands of thousands of them passed out and hung up in the entire area of Springfield. Grocery stores, gas stations, bars, rest stops, telephone poles, you name it, they were everywhere. One bar owner promised Stacey's mum that he wouldn't take the flyer down until the women were found, and the flyer is still up. It's faded and worn, but it's still there as of the 25th anniversary of their disappearance. Cheryl and Susie's family, all living out of state, were frantic. Cheryl's father in Washington state was making plans to get to Missouri as fast as he could. Being out of contact like this was not something Cheryl would do. But more concerning for them was Cheryl had a very cautious nature. She wouldn't have simply opened the door to a stranger knocking, particularly not in the middle of the night. And she would have kept her door locked, though it is possible that the girls didn't relock it behind them when they came home late. But they couldn't figure out how someone would have gotten into the house if the door was locked and Cheryl wouldn't have opened it. So that's a big question mark for them. And it was something very concerning. The police obtained a search warrant for the home on June 8th and began their investigation there at the house. They were hampered in the home because of how many people had been there. People had been in every room in the house. They had used the phone. They had cleaned the kitchen. And they had even been through the women's possessions looking for a clue for where they had gone. But the police still collected fingerprints, hairs, fibers, all the stuff they really couldn't do a whole lot with At the time, so many people had a reason to be in the house around the time of the disappearance that testing and excluding everyone would be very costly and very time-consuming. And that's time and resources that could be spent on searching. The next day, the FBI was called in to assist, and the police were using the home as their command post. The police were searching right away. Volunteer-assisted searches began on June 13th. The wooded areas and waterways were searched extensively. Ten days into the investigation, over 3,000 police man-hours were put into the case. One thing you have to understand about the geography, Springfield is in a city of about 150,000 people, and it's what you'd expect of a city that size. There is a university there, a mall, a zoo, and a lot of residential neighbourhoods. It's your typical mid-sized city. But it's like an island of population densities, because once you get outside city limits, it's small towns and rural areas all around. It takes a good two-hour drive to get to another actual city. So there is a lot of woods, lakes, streams and farmland to search. The women went missing between 2.30 and 8 a.m., The police didn't take the missing persons report until nearly 11pm and organised searching didn't start until the next day. 
So whoever took these women had a huge head start and they literally could be anywhere. But one thing that was really in their favour was national attention. Three women, two of them young and all three of them attractive, they disappeared in the overnight hours from a home where they should have been safe. This was a shocking case. America's Most Wanted aired a segment in those early days and 48 Hours sent a crew to follow police and the McCall family while they searched and followed up on leads. The crew was there within days of the disappearance and the special aired in September. The 48 Hours special, which you can find on YouTube, is really unlike anything Allie and I have seen, to be honest. Usually these programs are looking back, not filming in real time. They combine existing footage and new interviews to tell the story. But this was a camera crew filming conversations between the chief of police and the family. They were airing detailed information about tips as they were coming in those early days. It was a goldmine for our purposes of putting together an episode on the case 26 years later, but prosecutors watching it at the time, they were significantly less happy. This could have been a nightmare had this case gone to trial. The chief of police had even let the 48 Hours news crew film polygraphs being given, which was a huge breach of policy. But the police chief engaged the media in this way because he believed it would help get the word out, and that's what would solve this case. And it definitely did get the word out. A tip came in from a waitress at George's Family Restaurant, sometimes called George's Breakfast, Susie and Cheryl were regulars, and she said she saw the three women come in with three clean-cut men between 1 and 3 in the morning the night they went missing. And she said Susie appeared to be drunk. The restaurant was busy that night. My guess is it was the after-party crowd grabbing a bite to eat. And no one else who was there reports having seen the women. It is possible the girls had gone back to the house late and Cheryl took them out to get a bite to eat if they were hungry. The only thing that doesn't really fit is that Susie had been complaining of a stomach ache earlier, so eating at a late night place kind of seems like an odd choice, but I mean, it's not impossible. The sighting is considered unconfirmed because it could not be corroborated. The waitress may have been mistaken over who the women were, or she could have been remembering a different night. There was also a car stolen from Stacy's neighbourhood that night, and a description of the car was released to the public. But the women were at Susie's house, not Stacy's, and the women didn't live that close to each other after Susie and Cheryl had moved. Now, it's believed the stolen car was just a coincidence and is unrelated. The car was recovered, and nothing tied it to the missing women. A man working at a Springfield area convenience store called police and said that a bit after 2am on the day the women went missing, Cheryl had come in asking if he had seen her daughter because she was looking for her. And this seems like a huge lead at the time. There was no obvious reason Cheryl would be out looking for Susie when she thought Susie was either in Branson or staying at Janelle's house. So her being out searching by itself was significant. Did something happen and did she need to get in touch with Susie right away? But another clerk at another store nearby also said a woman came in looking for her daughter. And this clerk said that the woman was definitely not Cheryl Levitt. 
So we have two eyewitnesses at the same incident giving two different identifications, but there is no CCTV footage that we know of. Police soon backed off this lead completely. So maybe they did have some type of security footage from the businesses that we just don't know of. There was a tip that someone saw the women boarding a plane, but this doesn't make sense and didn't lead anywhere. And then there were the van sightings, and anyone familiar to this case at all knows about this van. Authorities and people following this case are split on this van that was seen. Was it connected, not connected? Was it a red herring? So around sunrise on June 7th, so we're talking right in the time frame it's believed the women went missing, a woman was sitting on her porch when a moss-covered Dodge van pulled into her next-door neighbor's driveway. And this was a distinct van in the 1990s, and she knows she had not seen it in the neighborhood before because this was a 1960s model possibly into the early 1970s. And I think you need to look that up if you don't already know what one of these vans looks like. But if you're driving right now, keep your eyes on the road. We'll just kind of explain it. This van was a cab over. So the front of the van was nearly flat, like how a VW bus looks. So basically, this looked more like the Scooby-Doo mystery machine than the van that the A-team rode in. And I know how horribly I'm dating myself using those references. But if you look at a picture, it looks exactly like the Scooby-Doo van. Exactly. Colour and everything. Right. And in the mid-1970s, Dodge stopped doing that cab-over engine model with the van, so we know that it wasn't any newer than that. Anyway, driving this van was a young blonde woman who this woman on our porch believes was Susie Streeter. She said Susie looked scared, and from the van, this woman heard a male voice say something like, just turn around and get us out of here, don't do anything stupid. The woman didn't come forward right away. Either she hadn't heard about the disappearance or she was scared to get involved. Both reasons have been reported, so it could have been a mix of both. The tip came in on day 17 of the investigation, but it would be a whole other month before it was followed up on. So many tips were pouring in and they were running them down as quickly as they could. To lend a little support to the mystery van, someone else had a similar story. A man was in a grocery store parking lot in the area of Susie and Cheryl's home. He saw a van with a young blonde woman behind the wheel and she was parked like she was waiting on someone. Something about it just struck him as off, so he said he wrote down the license plate on the newspaper. He had since discarded the newspaper, so the police had him go under hypnosis to see if he could recall the van's license plate number. They got the first three digits from him, but after running all this information against registered vans, they came up empty. To me, though, this sighting, if one of the girls were sitting in the car by themselves... Why wouldn't they try to alert someone if they were just waiting on the per- their abductor or whoever? Why not take the risk and try to alert someone? So police purchased a similar van to the sightings and they painted it that mossy or celery colour that the first witness had seen. They parked it outside the police station about three months after the disappearance. 
They were hoping just seeing the van would jog memories. Just like how we described the van to you, just reading that it was a van would likely put a different picture in your head than actually seeing what the van looked like, unless you were already aware of what a 1960-something Dodge van looked like. They wanted people to actually see it. This did generate more tips from people who thought they had seen the van around town, but the colors recalled by the various witnesses didn't match. And this doesn't exactly rule out any of these other sightings. Many saw the van when it wasn't completely laid out, like the woman on her porch and a newspaper boy who reported seeing the van when he was out in the morning. But also, color isn't something everyone remembers. It's one of those details that's regularly mixed up. After four months, the van in front of the police station was towed away having not brought in any leads that went anywhere. And I think it is very possible that there was a cab over Dodge van in the area and people were seeing it. I don't know how strongly I believe it's connected to the women. I really don't think one of them would have been driving it. I think that would have been a huge risk for their abductor to take to give them that kind of control over the vehicle. There was a tip that came in from an informant that Cheryl was involved in drugs And this actually comes up pretty regularly in discussions of this case that Cheryl and or Susie were involved in drugs. But this one was that Cheryl was involved in drugs, particularly cocaine, and that the disappearance was connected to that. The informant even gave the name of a drug dealer from Joplin, Missouri, which is about an hour west of Springfield. And this informant said this dealer was involved. The drug dealer was brought in and polygraphed. He denied even knowing Cheryl. He seemed kind of confused at being involved in this entire thing. And this was another dead-end lead. There was also a transient scene in the neighborhood that the police had a composite sketch made up of. There was a freshly dug area that turned out to be a massive anthill. Clothing items that didn't match the woman's known clothing or sizing, etc., etc., etc. I mean, I could go on forever with these small tips that came in. It's good they did come in because so many cases suffer because people think their information is probably not related. But this also shows how hard the investigation, one like this, can be when so many tips and leads have to be followed up on. There has also been criticism on this investigation. Mainly, it's because it wasn't handled the way most investigations were handled. There was a change in procedure for this one. The chief of police, Terry Knowles, he took the lead rather than assigning it to a detective. And according to several detectives, the chief micromanaged the case. Just as many people feel the case was handled appropriately, if not conventionally, And we weren't there, so we really can't say either way. But it has come up often enough in our reading that it's worth mentioning. Rather than giving the detectives the tips and sending them out to do their thing, leading one tip lead to another, then lead to another, they were having to constantly report back and be told what to do next. They were told not to share tips with each other and focus on what they were given which I imagine could lead to doubling up. But the detectives did not feel they were given the latitude they needed to do their job correctly. And some have complained they felt the chief of police discounted some suspects prematurely, even when the detectives working the case thought that they needed a deeper look. 
So this goes back to what we said earlier about the benefit of having multiple perspectives on the case. This early investigation may have been hindered by having everything have to go through one person rather than letting each detective follow their own path and also by not having everyone see the different parts so that they could get fresh perspective on it. The county prosecutor also felt confusion at this change in protocol, particularly the media access. He wrote a letter to Knowles telling him to guard some of this information a little better because the media didn't need to know everything. And there could be legal consequences to being such an open book with the media. He also didn't feel the prosecutor's office was being kept in the loop enough. While the investigations are the job of the police, the prosecutor has to make sure they can take to trial whatever case the police have built, and they need to be at least aware of what the police are doing. All of that said, this is a hindsight issue. We've seen cases mishandled and mismanaged for a variety of reasons, and this one isn't because the chief had an ego or didn't care about the investigation or was inexperienced or because he was trying to impede the investigation or steer it himself. There are few people outside of the victim's friends and families who wanted this case solved more than Terry Knowles. He micromanaged because he wanted it done right, and he didn't want time wasted on suspects or tips that he didn't think were viable. So whether this was the right decision or not, it doesn't really help cold case detectives today. All they can do is look through the case file and perhaps see which tips and suspects were maybe ruled out prematurely. Because this crime happened overnight at Cheryl and Susie's home and only a few people knew Stacy was going to be there, it is considered likely Cheryl or Susie were the target if this was someone known to them. And the FBI profile, which was difficult to form based on the very limited information at the crime scene, it did say this was likely the work of someone acquainted with Cheryl or Susie. Because the house is on a side street, it's set back from the road and somewhat obscured by foliage, it's unlikely that it was an optimistic crime unless the person was staking out the house or had been stalking one or both the women living there. There is an exception to this. It is possible that the girls were followed from the party or someone out that night saw the young women driving to Susie's house and they followed them. And this is actually where we're going to leave this for this week. Next week, we'll discuss some aspects of the case with more depth. We're going to look a little bit more at that broken globe. We're going to go through some specific tips that came in. And then we're going to discuss the various people who have been looked into as responsible for the women's disappearance. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Facebook at Insight Podcast, Twitter at Insightful Pod, Instagram at Insight Pod, or email us at insightfulpod at gmail.com. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash insightpod. And a special thank you to Chesgrave Music for our new custom theme. I'm Javier with Pretend Radio. And this season, I'm embedding myself in a cult. Throw him to the ground and get his devils out! Many in the media have tried to get in front of the accused cult leader, Jane Whaley, and have failed. We have asked you to leave. But somehow, I got in. How are you, sir? Yeah, yeah um, I'm here to speak with Jane Whaley. She invited me to service today. Yeah. This season, 
We're going deeper into the Word of Faith Fellowship than ever before. This story is on a collision course, and it's not going to end well. Why would anybody want to harm him? Sometimes we hurt other people by hurting people they love. Pretend Radio, Season 3, The Prophet. What's 